Welcome to this week's podcast from the Equipping Center. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Jacob Biswell. All right. Well, uh, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. And uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. And uh, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go ahead and read it, and then we're going to dive into it. So Nehemiah chapter 2. Let me get my Bible out here. Uh, for those of you who are visiting this morning, uh, we're right in the middle of a series on Nehemiah, and uh, we're talking about uh, just God's call for our house, for the equipping center. And uh, we had a great vision meeting Friday night, delicious food. And uh, let me tell you, Jimmy can make some great wontons. I mean, those were, those were phenomenal. All right, Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you were not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite, a definite time. And I said to the king, If it pleased the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that, I'm, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gate to the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of God was on me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal in which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on the re- onto the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates were consumed by fire. And then I passed on to the fountain gate in the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I'd done. Nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we're in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we are his servants. 
will arise and build. But you have no portion right or memorial in Jerusalem. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I thank you that it's alive. It's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. Father, I thank you that you send forth your word. It doesn't return to you void. So, Father, we thank you this morning for the anointing that makes preaching easy, that I would communicate that which you would have me to communicate. In the name of Jesus, amen. You know, Nehemiah had a pretty impressive resume. When we read through what he had done, and instead of leaving a path of destruction behind him, he was about to tackle the path of destruction in front of him. Now, last week I had some really bad dad jokes, okay? But this week I have a little more. But it comes in the form of what I found on some resumes this week. And so if you'll pull that out, Amber. I have learnt WordPerfect 6.0 computer and spray sheet programs. I received a plague for salesperson of the year. It's best for employers that I not work with people. I'm a perfectionist and rarely, if if ever, forget details. I've become completely paranoid, trusting completely no one and absolutely nothing. I was instrumental in ruining entire operation for a Midwest chain store. I finished eighth in my class of ten. References, none. I've left a path of destruction behind me. If that's any of y'all's resumes, see Pastor Hector. He'll help you after church. But listen, Nehemiah, he had a pretty impressive resume. So you wouldn't have seen that he'd left a path of destruction behind him. He was about to tackle this path of destruction in front of him. And his resume would include the following accomplishments. Cupbearer to the king for many years. We talked about last week what that meant. That meant every time a cup was brought to the king, he had to take a sip first to see if there was poison in it. So if he was having to take that sip, that, mean, that meant every time he came before the king, he was prepared to die for the king by taking a drink of that cup. He had great job stability as long as no one tried to poison the boss. He served in the court and well connected with the power brokers of Persia. Under his uh, section of his resume where he listed personal information, you'd see this. And this is what we talked about last week. I'm concerned about problems. I have a strong conviction about God's character. I confess my sin on a regular basis. I have confidence in God's promises and I have a commitment to get involved. That's a summary of what we learned about last week in our first building block, which was knowing how to pray. Anytime we're going to take on something for God, we got to learn how to pray. we got to seek His face. And as we move into Nehemiah chapter 2, now I'm not going to ask anyone to raise hands, but I'm just curious how many people read their, their homework assignment for the week, which was to read Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah. If you haven't, I'll give you a week extension. Um, But listen, before we jump into the text, I want to remind you how this all kind of fits into context. Nehemiah did not rely on his resume when it was time to build. He didn't didn't rely on all that he had done. He got out his tools so that he could handle the tasks ahead of him. And in verses 1 through 10, we saw what those first five tools were. And we're going to talk about those this morning. But in this, this week, our building block number two, how to handle a tough job. You know, I have a lot of tools that I've started accumulating over the years. But if you ask Greg, I am not a handyman. Ask him about my experience in arc welding with ceiling fans. It is, it is not my, my, my strength. And so anytime I, I need something, yeah, Buddy, I mean, Buddy can testify. It is not 
my strength. So I might have a lot of tools and I, I know how to use a screwdriver, but beyond that, it, it's going to be very, very painful to watch me try and build anything. And so when it comes time, I mean, we call on Lubin and, and Buddy and, and Greg. And I mean, even Greg came and painted the church because if you see my office, you see what I can do when it comes to painting. And so I recognize I have a full, few tools I know how to use, but I, I look to others who, who, like Greg in the back, has an Ace Hardware store in his garage. I don't know how he keeps track of them. But Nehemiah had a lot of tools as well. He pulled them out one by one when he needed them. And that first tool that he had, which is a tool we need to learn how to use, is waiting. And this one's a tough for us, tough for us y'all. How many of you love waiting? Okay, no one raised your hand. Okay, because if you had, I was going to have you pray for me after service. You could do the altar ministry. And we see that in verse 1, it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. Remember that the closing verse of chapter 1 is, now I was cupbearer to the king. So we have this connection here. He establishes in chapter 1, what his role was. And in chapter 2, we see that he comes before the king. He waited patiently on the Lord for an answer. He didn't come before the king and say, King, I, I need an audience with you. He was just waiting for the Lord to open the door. And that's exactly what we see happen. Hebrews 6.12 says this, Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what was promised. That's a huge deal for us, y'all, because we are not good at waiting. We are not good at waiting on the Lord. We want to make things happen. And Nehemiah could weep and pray. And we see in chapter 1, he fasted for four months. He prayed for four months. And he waited and he prayed. I know I've had to wait many times for God to answer a prayer. There's still ones that we're standing for today that we're believing God to answer. And when we learn how to wait, there's this, this tension that happens in our lives but you see, in Nehemiah's journal here, we, we could call the book of Nehemiah's own personal journal of describing what, what happened in this journey of rebuilding Jerusalem. He doesn't reflect on what happened in those four months. He doesn't give us a detailed account of those four months. We simply know he continued to do what he knew he had to do. And in that process, he was believing that God would at some point answer the cry of his heart to send him to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And that's where we get to point number two, which is trusting. The second tool he had fished out of his toolbox was called trusting. Nehemiah was sad in the last part of verse one. And this word is used three other times to describe how he looked when he was in the presence of the king. The king asked him a question to find out why Nehemiah was not his normal self. This had to have been a big deal for the king to recognize a change in Nehemiah's disposition. See, how many of us when we're waiting on something, we know how to stay joyful. I think that's a really hard thing for us. We, we lose our joy in the waiting process. And we get to this point in chapter 2 where the king notices a change in Nehemiah's disposition. He says to him, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah, he kind of wigs out when Artaxerxes asks him this question. He says, then I was very much afraid. I was very much afraid. You know, there's this thing about Nehemiah in this section, and I think he was very much afraid for two reasons. Number one, 
is when you came before the king, you were expected to be on your best behavior. You were to be perfectly content. You were to have a smile on your face. You were to serve the king with your, your best disposition. And the second is that he was about to ask the monarch of the Persian Empire to reverse a written policy he had made several years earlier about Jerusalem's reconstruction. This edict was recorded in Ezra 4.21. This is what it says. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Nehemiah knew it would take the power of God to get Artaxerxes to change his mind. I think I'd be afraid too. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what is holding us back in fear? Perhaps it's your past. Perhaps it's things that have taken, uh, taken place in your past. Maybe you're worried that something you did long ago would catch up to you. Maybe you're afraid of the present and find yourself crippled by the fear of people, the fear of change, or you're, you're confined to, to your reality. And maybe others of you might be fearful about the future and even death. I read a book a few years ago called Who Moved My Cheese? Has anyone re- read that book, Who Moved My Cheese? There's a great question that he asks in the book. What would you do if you weren't afraid? What would you do if you weren't afraid? And he points out that fear often keeps us from taking the steps we need to take and that fear paralyzes us. I think there's certainly a a level of fear sometimes when we're taking big steps of faith. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, as we're taking this big step of faith in our time to build campaign, as we're believing God for basically a family life center to be put behind the church, there's a bit of fear around that. Because there's, for me, I'm being real this morning, there's a fear of saying, hey, we need to trust God for money. If you know me, I hate talking about money. That is my least favorite subject. If I could never talk about money, I would never talk about it. Because there's a fear of manipulation. There's a fear of being taken wrong. And so we have to deal with our fears. And that's what Nehemiah did. He, he said, I was very much afraid, but I said. I was very much afraid, but I said instead of paralyzing him, fear propelled Nehemiah to action. Months of prayer had prepared him for these crucial minutes. Courage filled him when he realized it was no longer possible to hide his grief. Then using wisdom, he affirms his boss. He says, let the king live forever. Another translation says, long live the king. And then he explains why he's sad in verse 3. He says, why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Did you notice that Nehemiah never mentions the name of the city? He never says Jerusalem because he wasn't going to make it political in that moment. It wasn't about a kingdom issue. It was about a relationship issue. It wasn't a political issue in this moment. What Nehemiah did say is, I want to honor the burial place of my fathers. And this made a lot of sense to the king because the Persians were huge on on honoring their fathers. They were huge on on burial places and, and making sure there was respect. And so Nehemiah uses wisdom in this moment, in this moment of trusting. See, Nehemiah's fear could have led him to be timid instead of use the tool of trusting very effectively. And in verses 4 and 5, Nehemiah pulls out another very well-used tool, and that's the tool of praying. Verse 4 begins with a direct question from the king. What is it that you want? The king said to me, what would you request? And then Nehemiah briefly needs to speak with the king of heaven. 
Have you ever been in one of those situations where you really don't have time to pray, but you pray? You've been in one of those moments where you're in the middle of a conversation and you may be talking out loud, but on the inside you're saying, God, I need your word. I need you to say something to me right now because if you don't, I'm going to say the wrong thing and this is going to end up badly. This had to be a short prayer because right in between, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, there is a moment's notice for him to respond right there. There was a beat in the scripture where he had an opportunity to pray. And I picture him sending up, you know, that, that arrow prayer, that, that instant message to God, God help. I think that is one of the most powerful prayers. Sometimes we can pray, God help. See, if Nehemiah had even taken a moment to bow his head, bowing your head in front of the king was an act of treason. So Nehemiah didn't have an opportunity to act religious. And I think so many times we default to religion in our trying times rather than defaulting to our relationship. Religion locks us into, okay, I've got to do this and I've got to pray the right thing. No, God help This is encouraging to me, y'all, because you and I can pray at any time, in any place, by sending up that brief prayer to God right before we have to give an answer to our boss or before responding to our spouse. That's Jesus' help. Or when disciplining our kids. That's another one. Jesus, help me not to say the wrong thing to my child and break them, but help me to discipline them in the way they need to be disciplined. Shortened version. God, help or when looking for a way to impact our neighbors for Christ. You know, it's those popcorn prayers that often are the most powerful. I'm convinced that this is the only way to fulfill 1 Thessalonians 5.17, where we're challenged to pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. And here's the deal, is that once he had prayed, he pulled out the next tool, which is planning. We see this in verse 5-8. through 8. He says, I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. See, Nehemiah has lifted his heart to God. and Now he must open his mouth to the king. He practiced both dependent praying and deliberate planning. See, I think sometimes we miss one or the other in our journey of following God and trying to follow God is sometimes we'll do just the praying and we do no planning. And sometimes we'll do all the planning and we've never prayed about it. And it's finding that in our lives that we need both the deliberate planning but the dependent praying. This is good for us to hear. Some people think all you have to do is pray. And others focus on just planning. It's a both and deal. We're called to pray and plan, to worship and work, to make requests and to fill out requisitions. Notice that he knew how to answer the king's questions. That four months of prayer and fasting, he had been planning with God. God, this, if he gives me an opportunity, this is what I'm going to say. And Nehemiah gave him a time frame. He anticipated the question related to how long his journey would take. He knew how to plan the dangerous journey by asking for letters from the king's stationery. He knew what was ahead of him. And I think too many times we just pray, God, take care of this situation. And we make no plans. We don't do the research. We don't see what needs to happen. And for months, uh, as, as a leadership team and as a, as a board, we've even been praying into, okay, God, how do we plan 
for the vision that you've given this house. Because it's one thing to say, God, fill the house. What do you do when they show up? What did the disciples do on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people got saved and needed to be baptized? Okay, Hector, you take five. Susanna, you take five. Hannah, you take five. Okay, spread them out down the river. And then now where do we plug them into church? 3,000 can't fit in this building. If we were to have mass revival break out in Bryan College Station, what would we do? Are we planning for God to move or are we just praying for God to move? And I think we have to be deliberate in our planning for God to move. That we prepare ourselves that when God shows up in that moment when God breaks out, are we ready for it? So planning is huge, y'all. He didn't stop there. He Look at verse 8. We see here that he wanted permission to take some timber out of the king's own forest. He was not asking for a gift certificate to Home Depot. He asked for the wood from the king's own forest. That's a big request. That's the king's forest. He had done some research to know that the keeper of the king's lumberyard was named Asaph. Here, here's the other thing. The forest that he was pulling it out of was actually called paradise. That's the name for it in Hebrew. So he was asking the king for lumber out of paradise, out of the king's resting place. This is where the king would have gone to, to recoup in his own paradise. And Nehemiah is so bold as to ask, can I have wood from your resting place? I'll take some timber to rebuild the gates. Nehemiah asked for and received three things from the king. Permission, protection, and provision. And the final tool he pulled out in, in verses 8 through 10 was the tool of testifying. He gave testimony to the goodness of God in answering his prayers, guiding his mind, directing his speech, and meeting his needs. Look at the last part of verse 8. It says, For the wall city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of God was on me. The good hand of God was on me. Only God could have brought about such a dramatic change in the king's mind and the cupbearer's destiny. See, I think too many times, y'all, we, we diminish ourselves based on the role that we play. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Yeah, it was, it was a cushy job. He, he had all of his needs net. Needs met? Needs met? Needs met. He had all of his needs met. He was taken care of, but he didn't really have that big of a role. He was just the cupbearer. And yet God used a cupbearer, as we'll, we'll learn in our series, to rebuild God's city. And he testified. Nehemiah knew that what was taking place had everything to do with God's arranging, not human contriving. It's like what it says in Psalm 118.23. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. We talked about that Friday night in our, our vision dinner that the Lord did it. We couldn't have done all that the Lord did last year. The Lord did it. The Lord brought it about. The Lord, $1 million, y'all, for those who weren't there, $1 million in food distribution last year from this house. Isn't that incredible? Nehemiah was meticulous in his planning, but it would not have been enough if it were not for the Lord's perfect timing, constant guidance, and overruling provision. See, as we move into our time to build campaign, I'm confident that we will see the gracious hand of God upon us. We must use the tools of waiting, trusting, praying, and planning 
And then we'll see God do something truly amazing. And when He does, we'll testify about His gracious provision. See, I believe God is moving in this house. I believe He is moving on our people and that we're going to see Him do great things. But here, here's the reality, all, and I'm not going to take too much more of your time this morning, but there are tasks that He had for tackling the job. See, in verse 10, He encounters some bad guys. It says in verse 10, When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. See, Nehemiah was this master builder, and there are tasks for tackling a tough job. And as we move into the second half of chapter 2, we'll see that he tackled five tasks. Number one, he recharged. This is important, y'all. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he could appreciate why his brother Hananiah was so bummed out. As he looked at the city's shattered walls and useless gates, he was overwhelmed. But before he could examine them more closely, there was a greater priority. Nehemiah needed a nap. Naps are spiritual principles, y'all. It says that when Elijah got to the brook, he had a snack and he took a nap. Some of y'all just need a snack and a nap. That, just, just take a nap. Have a snack and take a nap. It's not just for toddlers. The journey of four months took its toll on Nehemiah. You could say he had camel leg. It was four months to get from where he was to Jerusalem. He had spent four months praying and fasting, then another four months to get to Jerusalem. And he's in this place. Ezra did the same thing when he arrived in Jerusalem many years earlier. It said he rested for three days, just as Elijah needed rest under the juniper tree. And Jesus withdrew his disciples for rest. You and I need to make sure we replenish our resources on a regular basis, that we recharge. Here's a biblical principle. Don't try to make major decisions when you're tired. Simple. I know when I'm short on sleep, I'm not usually very sharp. And if you ask my wife, I'm usually a little crabby. Sometimes I need to just wait until the next morning to tackle something. But see, recharging is so important. But after recharging, Nehemiah assessed the need. That's point number two. See, assess the need. We see this in verses 12 to 16. Nehemiah knew that in order to lead this project, he would need a first-hand picture of what needed to be done. He then scouted out the damage to the walls one dark night. With the moonlight showing the mounds of broken stone and demolished gates, Nehemiah made some notes to himself. This moonlight journey is one of the most dramatic scenes in the book of Nehemiah. It's one of my favorite scenes. And I think he discovered at least three things in his assessment. Number one, it's a demanding job. The circuit of the walls were more than a mile long. And the new wall needed to be three to four feet thick and 15 to 20 feet high. This is a big wall. This was not going to be easy, but Nehemiah knew that he and his people had to give it their best. Same is true for us. It was a hazardous assignment. Nehemiah went at night because there were enemies lurking around. He said nothing to anyone until the time was right. And it was a cooperative venture. It was only by surveying the walls and gates that Nehemiah could calculate how the work should be divided. That comes to the third task. He recruited help. After replenishing his resources and assessing the need, Nehemiah now recruited workers in verse 17. In some way not mentioned in the narrative, Nehemiah gathers this large group of prospective partners. First, he identifies with workers. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Nehemiah is passionately involved in the city's welfare. 
talked about this week, this last week. We need to have concern about the problem. We need to look at our city and say, where are we supposed to be serving? How can we build our city? We need to look at our own lives. What needs to be built up in our own lives? And here's the deal. You need help. You can't do it on your own. That's why we have the body of Christ. Next, he presents spiritual perspectives. They're in trouble, and it's not just because Jerusalem is in ruins. He sees their spiritual disgrace. The sight of those collapsed walls for well over a century has created the impression, the pagan mind, that the God of Israel has abandoned His people. He recognizes that there are always spiritual issues involved in a building project, that it's more than just brick and mortar. As His people, we have to be aware of the spiritual opportunities and challenges as they present themselves to us. And then He invites immediate action. He says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We will no longer be in disgrace. Everyone realizes that the task must begin without further delay. Nehemiah is asking a lot from these people. He's not afraid to ask them to step up to the plate. The sacrifices will be huge. They'll have to take time off of work to rebuild the walls. Who will protect their families? There's so much that goes into it. But before they can respond, Nehemiah then inspires confidence into the people in verse 18. While rebuilding the walls is an important job, the central theme in the book, of Nehemiah is the sufficiency of God. God provides for His people. As we move into this time of building at TEC, what we're doing is important, but the main thrust of this is not about money, it's not about buildings, it's not about any of that. It's about us as a people becoming dependent on the sufficiency of God. That we would fully trust that He is the provider He is the one who makes ways. He's the one that takes care of it. Because in and of ourselves, we can't do it. But God can. Listen to Nehemiah's testimony. I also told them about the gracious hand of God upon me and what the king had said to me. He didn't reach Jerusalem because he was a skillful skillful persuader or because the queen was possibly this compliant heifer. Heifer. Gosh. Help her. Wow. Or because the king was even a generous benefactor, but because God was a sovereign provider. Since God had done all of that, he would certainly help them to complete the task of rebuilding the walls. By telling the people what God had already done, he was firing them up for what God was about to do. That's why we share testimonies all the time is because we want to keep faith alive in our hearts. We saw God do so much last year and He's already done so much this year and He's going to continue to do more and more. We often face those same two obstacles within the church. We're either content with the way things are or we've tried that before and it didn't work. But I'm thankful that this church responds much like the wall builders did in this chapter. Someone defined leadership as this, the art of getting people to do what they ought to do because they want to do it. I'm proud to be the pastor of this church and want to do all I can to help us do the things we ought to do because we want to do them because the gracious hand of God is upon us. And this fifth task is he handles opposition. Whenever we get serious about kingdom work, the enemy will oppose us. The first two enemies were identified in verse 10. 
Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, are joined by Geshem the Arab. In verse 10, the opponents are very much disturbed. Now this troublesome trio becomes highly vocal in their attacks on Nehemiah and his work crew. First, they derided the efforts of the worker. Verse 19 says they mocked and ridiculed them. The enemy will come with verbal onslaughts because that is part of his tactics. They laughed at the workers and they belittled both the resources and their plans. Once they had belittled them, then they suggested that they were rebelling against the king. That weapon had worked once before in Ezra 4. What, are, what is this you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I love how Nehemiah deals with these guys. He doesn't engage their conversation. He doesn't answer their lies. He doesn't defend himself. He first exalts God who called him to do the work in verse 20. He says, the God of heaven will give us success. He wasn't concerned about their fictitious insinuations. He was concerned that God would get the glory in the project. Nehemiah wanted his people to know that God had everything in control. Even though Geshem controlled the southern approach to the city and the other two thugs patrolled the north and the east, Nehemiah was not ruffled. In his reply, he made three things clear. Rebuilding the wall was God's work. The Jews were God's servants and their opponents had no part in the matter. The last part of verse 20 says it rather strongly. We, His servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Their opponents had no past right, not present prerogative to be there and no future role in the city. When the enemy comes to you with opposition, you don't defend yourself. You declare the word of the Lord. You declare the word of the Lord. My God shall deliver me. My God shall heal me. You have no right to what belongs to me because it belongs to God. That's how we deal with opposition. We don't have to fight the enemy. We don't have to say all these things to the enemy. We just declare the word of the Lord. The tools are out of the toolbox now. Waiting, trusting, praying, planning, testifying. And my question to you this morning, are you ready to pick them up and start using them? It's not enough just to rely on your religious resume. The tasks are ready to be tackled. So replenish your resources. Assess the need. Recruit workers. Inspire confidence. And handle opposition. This is a continual commitment and a long-term task. God wants us to be fully engaged for the long haul. It reminds me of two guys in a pickup who drove into a lumber yard. One of the men walked into the office and said, we need some four-by-twos. The worker said, you mean two-by-fours, don't you? The man said, I need to check with my buddy. I'll be right back. When he came back, he said, yeah, that's what I mean. I need, I need some two-by-fours. The worker then said, all right, how long do you need them? The customer paused for a minute and said, I better go check. He came back in a few minutes and said, we need them for a long time. We're going to build a house with them. We're going to be part of God's construction project here at TEC. And if we want to see God rebuild some things in our own lives, then we're going to need to rely on Him for a very long time. You need your four-by-twos for a long time. The Psalm 127.1 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Church, it's time to build. As I close this morning, I'm going to offer a few things. 
If you've never made Jesus Lord of your life, if you've never surrendered you, your, your life to Him, I want to give you that opportunity this morning. It's the greatest decision any human being could ever make is to come into fellowship with the Almighty God. He made a way of escape from sin for us through the cross of Christ by His blood. Ephesians chapter 2 says He's a God who is rich in mercy. You need mercy this morning. It's available for you. We're going to pray in just a moment. That's you this morning. and You're saying, I, I want to make Him Lord. With every head bowed, every eye closed, if you've never made Jesus Lord of your life, or perhaps you're in a place in your life where once you knew Him, once you were close to Him, but today you'd say, I'm, I'm far from Him. I don't feel that relationship with Him anymore. I want you to raise your hand. Father of those categories fit you this morning. In just a moment, we're going to pray a prayer together. By praying that, you're, you're saying this thing. Today I'm giving my whole life to Jesus. Every part of me. That's you this morning. You want to pray that prayer with us. You want to make that declaration. I just want you to slip up your hand. If you're watching online this morning, pray this with us. Church, let's pray together. Jesus, I repent of my sin. Everything that's made me far from You. I want to know You fully. I receive the sacrifice that You made on the cross to rescue me and reconcile me. Today, I choose to take the first step in following You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. To stay connected, follow us on Instagram or Facebook or visit www.equippingcenter.us.